Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. You're fired. President Trump sacks a senior official who said the 2020 election was secure. Safety success, Pfizer ready to seek vaccine approval within days. And cleared for takeoff 20 months later, Boeing's 737 MAX jet can fly once more. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome to First Move. Once again, we bring, we begin the show today with the global health crisis like none other and a medical response that's unparalleled in modern times to breaking news this morning. Pfizer saying the newest data that they have show its vaccine now has a 95% efficacy rate and that they say it's also passing some key safety milestones. Pfizer hopes to apply for emergency use authorization to begin vaccinations in late December of this year. Phenomenal news, but of course it doesn't help the near-term COVID reality, which remains unfortunately pretty bleak. In the United States, nearly 77,000 people remain hospitalized. Both Russia and Poland reporting record numbers of lives lost to COVID today. France has now also surpassed 2 million COVID cases. Japan, meanwhile, reporting its third biggest daily jump in new cases too, weighing up the economic impact of all of this versus good vaccine news equals choppiness, volatility for stocks and for global markets, especially as hopes for further financial support, at least here in the United States, from U.S. Congress are fading once more. Just take a look at the Japanese Nikkei. It closed lower for the first time this week. That despite encouraging export numbers close to pre-pandemic levels. In fact, in the United States, the down, the S&P futures are retracing some of yesterday's losses. In fact, actually, we've turned as you can see, and we are now at some four-tenths of a percent higher pre-market for the Dow, helped along by Boeing, the 737 MAX jet, as I mentioned, finally getting approval to fly again this morning after being grounded for some 20 months. Now, of course, we just need to get more people flying again. But tackling the pandemic, sadly, not the government's top priority at this moment. Let's get to the drivers because we will begin once more in Washington, where instead of concession, we see more signs of aggression. Donald Trump firing the man in charge of election cybersecurity, Christopher Krebs, a top director at Homeland Security, for publicly rejecting one of the president's main claims about election fraud. Joe Johns in D.C. for us. Joe, great to have you on the show as always. The critics will say, look, this is the president once again firing someone who disagrees with his point of view. Supporters of the president will perhaps be arguing this morning, is he covering something up? Is there any evidence that this election wasn't secure or that there is some degree of fraud out there? Do we have any evidence? No evidence, uh, quite frankly. And the more you talk to elections officials around the country, the more it becomes clear that what the evidence points to is that Chris Krabs, uh, the uh, cybersecurity expert who was fired, was accurate when he said the 2020 election was the most secure election in American history. Of course, uh, the president begs to differ, and that's why uh, he says he got rid of Chris Krebs. Now, 
Of course, it's an unpopular decision in many places up on Capitol Hill. A number of Republicans have already said they disagree with the firing or at the very least praised Krebs for what he has been doing in that role at Homeland Security. But the administration, including the White House press secretary, Kayleigh McEnany, was out here on the driveway just a little while ago. She said Krebs, of course, and the president disagree. The president obviously is the boss. president also um, in, in his position and able to fire the president. The suggestion from Ms. McEnany is that there may have been some type of political motivation or that Krebs had some type of a grudge against the president. Not clear at all that that's true. He's a highly regarded cybersecurity expert, comes from Microsoft, and has been in that position for quite a while. Joe, what are Republicans saying behind the scenes as they watch what's happening with the White House, with the firings? This is clearly, as we've discussed over the past few days, not the first firing that we've seen of those around the president. What are they saying, if not on the surface, behind the scenes? Well, right. It looks like an old-fashioned authoritarian purge, quite frankly, coming at the end of an administration after an election. Nonetheless, some Republicans up on Capitol Hill, powerful senators, including senators from states that the president won in the last election, these are Republican senators, are uh, disagreeing with the president uh, in one degree or another. Most notably, I think, Ben Sass the Republican senator from Nebraska, who is known for his candor and speaking his mind, saying flatly he did not think that uh, this man ought to have been fired. Others simply praising uh, Krebs for his work uh, at Homeland Security. Julia. This is very worrying. Joe Johns, thank you so much for that. All right, on. The Pfizer-BioNTech coronavirus vaccine is now 95% effective, according to updated interim data from the pharmaceutical giant. The CEO of Pfizer also confirming that they've got enough safety data now to ask the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, for emergency use authorization. Elizabeth Cohen joins me now. Elizabeth, two sets of great news, it seems, coming from Pfizer and that BioNTech vaccine this morning. Walk us through what more we know. Sure. It's it's not just good news because it shows that it's 95 percent effective and also shows that it is generally safe. There were no serious side effects. But this is also good news, Julia, just because it's more data. The more data, the better. The more people who go through this study and who go through the various stages of it, the better. The more sure we are that this data is right. So let's take a look at what this data shows. When you take a look at this, the placebo group, so the 22-ish thousand people who were given a placebo, just a shot of saline that does absolutely nothing. 162 of those people contracted COVID. Nobody gave them COVID. I mean, Pfizer didn't intentionally give them COVID. They just caught COVID, living their life just like the rest of us. Nine of those 162 cases were severe. Now, when you look at the vaccine group, the people who actually got Pfizer's vaccine, the same amount of people, about 22,000 people got the vaccine, Only eight people got sick and only one of them severely. Again, to be clear, Pfizer didn't give these people COVID. They just were out living their lives. And in the course of living their lives, they caught COVID. So this is really important data. And again, the safety data shows that there were no serious side effects, things like, you know, a sore arm, things like that. Onwards towards trying to get FDA approval. What do we know potentially about the timing 
of even setting up the meeting and them discussing with the FDA what they've got here. So, so Julia, not to get too weedy and bureaucratic and nerdy on you, but no, I'm please do that. Do we like your nerdiness. Now. <laughs> <laughs> so the so the FDA, in order to give the green light to this or not, they have to have a meeting of their advisory committee. And that is outside experts. Those are people who have nothing to do with Pfizer, nothing to do with Moderna, which is the other company that's about to apply to the FDA. And so those outside experts have to meet and have to talk to the FDA. And all of this is very public and transparent. That meeting has been set. That meeting is going to be, or at least they've put aside, three days for it, according to a source uh, that talked to us. And that's December 8th, 9th, and 10th. The thinking is, just sort of based on history, that at the end of the day on the 10th, the FDA will either give a green or a red light. Now, once the FDA, let's say they do give a green light, and I think that's what's expected, then a committee at the CDC needs to do its consideration as well. But the fact that they've already asked the folks on this FDA advisory committee, hey guys, hold these days, don't see patients, don't do some other work, we want you for these three days, that is very telling. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, as hopeful and as optimistic as we are and desperate, quite frankly, to get this vaccine approved and people being vaccinated, it doesn't help with the rising caseloads that we're seeing in America at this moment, the the rising hospitalizations, both at this moment, Elizabeth, at record levels. That's right. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because I think sometimes people think, oh, there's a vaccine. I don't have to worry about anything else. You do have to worry about something else. In the United States, many, many people, a good chunk of the country isn't even going to be able to start getting the vaccine until the spring. It will Mm. take months and months to come even close to building anything that looks like herd immunity. We are still going to have to wear masks. We are still going to have to do social distancing. As you noted, these cases are basically rising out of control. We don't hear any thing really from the Trump administration about trying to get this under control. It's just kind of let her rip. And so what we're seeing is cases that are just going up, 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 hospitalizations that are going up, 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 and deaths that are going up, up, up. Yeah, just got to take care of yourselves and each other. Follow the precautions and keep doing it. Elizabeth Cohn, thank you so much for that. Now, across the Atlantic in Europe, France has become the first European nation to top two million cases. In Germany, thousands of protesters holding an anti-corona measures demonstration in Berlin. The state of South Australia shutting down for six days to curb the spread of the virus. To South Korea, where also they're reporting more than 300 new infections today. That's the biggest daily jump since August. And in Japan reporting nearly 1,700 new cases. That's the country's third highest daily jump since the pandemic began. And Selena Wang is live in Tokyo looking at the details. Uh, Selena, just talk us through the numbers here and how authorities are responding. Well, Julia, actually here in Tokyo, they reported 493 new infections on Wednesday. That's actually the highest daily count since the pandemic started. According to local news reports, Tokyo may be raising the COVID alert to the highest level and may ask businesses to close early. In other parts of Japan, they've also been dealing with the surge in cases. Osaka has asked people not to leave, not to go out with more than five people. In other parts like Sapporo, they've asked people to refrain from going out. Now, what's interesting here is that Japan actually has never implemented a strict lockdown because the government doesn't have the legal means to enforce one. But despite that, despite the relatively relaxed restrictions compared to the rest of East Asia, Japan has so far avoided an explosion of cases. Total deaths is less than 1,900 and 
total infections are just over 120,000. Experts do credit that to generally this culture of mask wearing, generally people adhering to those government guidelines. But I've spoken to many infectious disease experts who are critical of what they see as the Japanese government's focus on boosting the economy, on encouraging domestic tourism with these subsidies. And they say we are in this third wave that could get even worse in these winter months. Yeah, every nation struggling to find a balance between supporting the economy and economic activity and curtailing and controlling the virus. Selena Wang, thank you so much for that update there. Now, 2020 already been called the worst ever year for aviation. It's especially true for Boeing amid the continued grounding of its best-selling jet, the 737 MAX. Well, at long last, the plane has FAA, that's the U.S. regulatory approval, to fly once more. Richard Quest has all the details. Richard, great to have you with us. Is this the FAA now saying what we saw in those two devastating crashes cannot happen again? Is that the message today? It most certainly is. And what the FAA is saying clearly is that, yes, the plane now has a stamp of approval to fly. But that doesn't mean to say it will fly again tomorrow or today or even the day after, because the airlines now have to go through and implement the changes the FAA has required. First of all, software enhancements. So the MCAS uh, computer system doesn't uh, do what it did in Lion Air or Ethiopian and push the nose of the plane down. So you've got software enhancements. Secondly, you've got training for pilots. Steve Dixon, the FAA administrator, has taken the new training plan and actually gone through it. He is a pilot. But now airlines have to put their own pilots through that training program. And finally, the hundreds of 737 MAXs that are out there have to be readied to fly again. They've been in storage for over a year. It could take several weeks to get each of those planes fit to go back in the air with passengers. Just basic things like oil, engines, cleaning, making sure no dust has got into places. It's quite fascinating. So Richard, do you think we see one of these jets back up in the skies before we get to the end of the year as a result? And obviously they're, they're, they're coming back at a time when we've seen the industry <laughs> devastated by COVID. I just wonder whether the quarantine, the health and safety fears perhaps overwhelm the fears that you and I talked about in the beginning of people just simply being willing to get on this plane again <coughs> and trusting it. I think there are two or three undercurrents there. Uh, the first, could they get them by the end of the year? I, I Possible but doubtful. There is a lot of training that has to take place, a lot of software changes, and those planes do have to be readied, and that could take several weeks. It's not, it's possible, but I would say not likely. And anyway, do they need the planes? The second point you were saying, Julia, do they need the planes at the moment? Not really. No airline wants to take on massive numbers of new planes. They can barely fly, well, they can't fly the ones they've got with passengers. However, these new planes are much more fuel efficient. And in an era where you're looking at costs, you're certainly going to want to introduce them to the fleet. The last point, you know, it's a really important point, Julia, that will passengers want to fly it? But I'm sorry, I'm sceptical. Some might say cynical. I believe within short order, no passenger is going to seriously be asking, is this a 737 MAX? Oh, I will. But you're right. That's just anecdotal. (laughs) (laughs) Richard Quest. Thank you so much for that.
Thank you. All right. Let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that are making headlines around the world. Residents of Central America are wading through a fresh round of wreckage. IOTA struck Nicaragua Tuesday as a Category 4 hurricane, just 24 kilometers from where another Category 4 storm hit around two weeks ago. Authorities say nearly all of Nicaragua's Caribbean coast is without electricity. The Trump administration has announced it will withdraw thousands of U.S. troops from Iraq and Afghanistan. The change will happen just days before Joe Biden is sworn in as president and will leave around 2,500 troops in each country. Acting Defense Secretary Christopher Miller said the plans do not reflect a U.S. policy change, but the decision was strongly opposed by former Defense Secretary Mark Esper, who was fired by the president last week. Coming up after the break, the CEO of Emirates on the inevitable, the airline posting its first loss in more than 30 years. And vaccine breakthroughs coming at a breathtaking pace, the risk of getting it wrong. A sober warning on First Move coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. markets remain on track for some early session gains this after the down. The S&P pulled back from all-time highs on Tuesday. Though I can see uh, the Nasdaq futures slipping a little bit as I watch. News from Pfizer that its COVID vaccine is 95% effective in their latest interim data and safe for seniors is helping lift sentiment. Pfizer shares up over 2%, as you can see on the news pre-market. Retailers also in focus target a big gainer too. It's reporting double-digit Q3 sales gains and huge growth in its curbside pickup activity and home delivery services. The Dow also getting a lift from component Boeing. As we've been discussing with Richard this morning, it shares up some 7% pre-market. The US says the 737 MAX can finally fly again. But clearly, as Richard was saying, a number of steps to go through first. The airline industry clearly getting excited by the latest update on vaccine developments. The president of Emirates, the Middle East's largest carrier, is forecasting a return to profitability in the first half of 2022 Emirates recently posted its first loss in more than three decades. John Defterius joins us live from Abu Dhabi, who's been speaking to Emirates. John, great to have you with us. Clearly, there's a good time coming, but it could just be a good time coming. It's going to take a while for people to get vaccinated and get people back in the skies. And that's clear, I think. Yeah, I think you're right, Julia, because Sir Tim Clark was suggesting the president of Emirates Airline, you have to look at six to nine months to get it to the market. Uh, He bangs on about the same thing that we've talked about, very vital to get it into the developing world, particularly very populated countries like India, and that's stretching down uh, to Africa. But think about the struggle for Emirates. It's gone from $5 billion from peak to trough in a year. Not unusual because that's happened in the United States, Europe, and also the Asian carriers. But uh, he's excited about what we see from Pfizer and Moderna and the efficacy of those uh, tests. And also keep in mind here that Russia and China are experimenting with their vaccines as well. So I asked him, collectively, could this be the silver bullet for the industry uh, or not? Here's Sir Tim Clark. I can see no other way out of this pandemic, and they have to be the silver bullet. We've got track and trace, we've got lockdowns, we've got all sorts of protocols, social distancing, etc., etc. But still, in the West, in America, in Europe, it is rampant. Even under nine months of all sorts of protocols to try and mitigate the risk of, of infection. 
So for me, if it is as it is, it's absolutely vital that we roll these out at scale, at speed, and get them administered as quickly as possible. Only then will we get ourselves through this. So let's talk it through. What's realistic in terms of global distribution? You have the hub here set and ready to go. Are we looking at the second half of 2021 or the second quarter of 2021 on a global scale? No, I think if they do come out and we have got the logistics of the supply chain sorted, of course in Europe and America, they can be road transport, they can be the integrators, FedEx, UPS can fly them around and do all that. But once you're talking about this transoceanic and remote continents from the actual production source of the pharmaceutical side of things, you need to get all this sorted out. And it is that that, in tandem with the scaling up of production, in tandem with the scaling up of the supply chain, whether it be ground and air, will take time, six to nine months, which is why I believe we will see during the course of 21 all this getting into place in the last quarter. And as that happens, you will see demand for air travel grow. I believe at pace. Uh, at pace, back to normal, perhaps by the first quarter of 2022 is what you're suggesting. I would, I would think that during the first quarter, first half, the, two, the first six months of 22, you'll see a lot of this coming back. So I'm expecting that, maybe I'm over-optimistic, but in all the years I've been in this business and led a business which is global in its reach, and seeing how countries have responded to various crises, time and time again, even with the big crises, the big disruptions to the global economy, it has bounced back. And that's what I'm expecting. John, it's quite fascinating to hear just his sense of how long distribution of vaccine takes and the logistical issues which we've been talking about on a daily basis on the show. But how does that fit just in terms of the timing, as he was saying, profitability perhaps by 2022 amid the broader strategy here? I mean, they've had to let a lot of the workforce go as well. And we're talking about a long way out even today. Yeah, indeed, uh, uh, Julia. But you have to think about the last nine months, what they've gone Mm. through. Uh, you know, Emirates took this calculated risk, as the chairman was suggesting, uh, to reopen in May. And many were saying, well, that was premature, but Dubai needs to do so because tourism and, and travel is so important to the economy there. They worked very hard to build up an air corridor, Julia, and it happened with Heathrow in the last week. Uh, sources at Emirates tell me, uh, expect more to come. So they're looking to set the protocols. And, you know, they tested this vaccine distribution out of Dubai during the Ebola crisis between 2014 and 2016. In the end, it wasn't needed, but they went through that trial and they think that they're well positioned for South Asia and Africa. They already have the flight connections there and they're running at 75% of their routes right now. So as soon as they get the clearance here, they have the refrigeration and they're ready to go. And they think it gives them that kind of first mover advantage to get back into profit in 2022. He was extremely bearish, Julia, uh, six months ago, saying that could be 2023 or longer to get back to normal So the vaccines are resonating well with Sir Tim, who, by the way, was going to retire and staying on to get through the crisis for Emirates and did not get uh, an end date right now. Yeah, fascinating, though. He's brought forward those recovery plans by some two years as a result of what we're talking Mm. about here. It's it is a game changer, as as everyone's saying. We just need to get to that point. John Defterios, thank you so much for that. Great to have you with us. The market opens next. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move and U.S. stocks are up and running this Wednesday. That's the opening bell over there at the New York Stock Exchange. And we've got a higher open for the Dow and the S&P 500 this morning, three tenths of one percent. I'm just looking at the big board there. Gains not as strong as we were seeing pre-market, but investors do applaud news from Pfizer this morning that their COVID vaccine has passed their final safety reviews with a stunning 95% efficacy rate. This is still interim data, though. Let's be clear on that point. Bitcoin, in the meantime, is blazing the digital asset, crossing 18,000 for the first time in almost three years today. That's less than 10% away from record highs. But I have to say, fading hopes for new U.S. emergency aid remain a market concern. Congressional Democrats have asked Senate Majority Leader McConnell to restart negotiations immediately, quote, for the sake of the country. Mitch McConnell says the Democrats' price tag is still too high. Watch that $2 trillion, near $2 trillion gap. Hmm. Now, there are fast and furious developments in the vaccine race, as we've been describing throughout the show, with Pfizer-BioNTech moving towards an application for emergency use authorization in the United States. The Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, says vaccine makers following Operation Warp Speed only need two months of follow-up data from clinical trials to apply for that emergency use authorization. However, my next guest says that's not long enough, and he'd like to see six months' worth of data. Dr. Marcus Schaubacher is the president and CEO of ECRI, Emergency Care Research Institute, an independent nonprofit for healthcare worldwide. Dr. Schaubacher, fantastic to have you on the show. We're clearly all emotional, I think, about these vaccines. We're, we're desperate to get a vaccine and get back to normal. But just explain why you feel just waiting those few extra months is, is so important at this moment. Yeah, good morning, Julia. And first of all, thank you for having me on. It's exciting time. I mean, there's a glimmer of hope, finally, uh, at the end of a long, uh, dark 11 months, if I may say. So clearly we are excited about uh, these early signs of effectiveness, both in the Pfizer as well as in the Moderna trial. But there are early indications. They're not the final results. And the nature of clinical studies is that they're trying to represent the overall population and go through very detailed statistical models. And these statistical models only bear out when you let the trial run its course including its uh, follow-up. And we just believe that two months of follow-up is not enough. You know, a couple of things that you and I have spoken about off-air is the inherent bias that you tend to get in early data just with who's willing to sign up for the trials. I know this is sort of one concern for you as you look across all of these um, different vaccine trials that are going on at this moment. That the, the second thing is, it's particularly when it's a two-dose vaccine, how do you know how effective it is if you've only seen two months of data after the vaccine, particularly when the technology, the science of some of these platforms, like the mRNA, which is the, the messenger RNA mechanism, the platform for Moderna and for Pfizer, has never even been used before. These are logical concerns for me in both cases. No, absolutely. And, you know, you, you're right. These technologies have never been used in vaccines before. So we just don't know about their long-term effects. And by limiting the review data to two months, we just might miss longer-term side effects or adverse events, which could be severe. And we simply don't know. The other point you made earlier is about the bias from a time perspective. 
how clinical trials are designed is that you look for volunteers. And we complement both Pfizer and Moderna for really trying to get a diverse group of patients from an age, from a um, gender perspective, people of color and so on. So they have done a good job in, in designing those. But typically what you see is that these groups are from a recruitment perspective happening later in your trials because they're more difficult to recruit. So when you go with only two months data, you get a bias towards those early volunteers who sign up and you typically might not have the same risk profile uh, because they are not as exposed. And, you know, just it's it's not a um, total science in this, but if you look at this, um, the total population in the United States had about plus 3% of infection rate, right? Um, 11 million out of 330 million. In the Moderna trial, for example, we have only seen 0.6% of infected patients in the placebo trial. Now, again, that's not an entirely fair comparison because you do these statistical models um, to represent the overall uh, population, but you need to give it time. And the other aspect, uh, you know, I wanted to talk about is the effectiveness over time. So if you stop at two months, mm. you might not see if somebody gets infected from the vaccinated group later, like four months, five months, six months. And we need a vaccine which is really effective at a minimum of six months. So if we stop early, we have that risk on missing the severe side effects and missing if the vaccine is only active for a short, short period of time. Okay, so what you're saying here is side effects, again, because we've never used this platform for vaccines before, could appear within a six-month period, not just a two-month period. So you are raising safety concerns, even just with two months of data. But I think the other critical point that you're mentioning here is we don't know how long the immunity that the system builds as a result of this vaccine lasts. So we could once again lose that immunity within a short window and perhaps in the future need to have four vaccines, two shots, twice a year, for example. And you're sort of saying that could be impracticable. Well, that's, that's impractical. And, and most importantly, we would lose the trust of the population. So, for example, right. if we send everybody, go and get vaccinated, we'll make a big deal out of it. And then we find out that in the next fall, everybody who got vaccinated in the spring is going to get sick again then they're going to say, well, that obviously doesn't work. And we already have great skepticism around vaccine in this country. So that would not be helpful. It would set us back years. And we're saying just go a little slower, not a lot, just a little slower for a month and get the sufficient data, get more reliable data, both from an effectiveness perspective as well as from a side effect um, adverse event uh, perspective and use that time. Use that time to get your logistics in order. Um, I know there's different opinions about that. We have great concerns about the logistics. This is a massive operation. You're trying to vaccinate millions and millions of people with two doses, uh, which need to be refrigerated. In case of the Pfizer vaccine, they need to be deep frozen at minus 70. That causes logistical challenges. So use that time, it's not wasted, and go faster after you know that the vaccine is effective and safe. Everything that you've said makes sense to me. Marcus, how likely is it that the FDA decides to wait longer before it gives this FDA approval? Because it feels like a very low probability event. And, and one of the other concerns that you and I have discussed is 
the trials end. So there will be people watching this going, hey, look, just give the approval. Let the trials effectively continue and continue to collect the data. But ethically, you can't do that, can you? So once you've given FDA approval, that's it. Right. So once you have given this, and again, it's not a full approval, right? It's a shortened, abbreviated process already. It's called emergency use authorization. And, um, you know, we are not opposed to that at all because it usually takes over a year for those clinical trial follow-ups. So we're just saying do six months instead of two. But once you have given that approval, this emergency use authorization, it's not an approval, that, that authorization, it becomes ethically very difficult to withhold the vaccine from those who are in the studies or in the general population. Because imagine, you know, you, you are uh, one of those who might or might not have gotten the vaccine and you say, well, you given emergency authorization, now you need to please unblind everything so I know if I got it or not, because if I didn't get it, I want to get it now. And, and then we're losing this entire follow-up, which is so critical, particularly for the long-term side effects and for the, effective, the long-term effectiveness. So we're just saying, just stick to what you designed it for, which is good. The trials are well-designed give it the time it needs. Yeah, because people who got the placebo are going to act differently than they might have done if they thought that they'd got the vaccine in the first place. Uh, Very quickly, because I'm running out of time, when this vaccine becomes available, Marcus, are you going to take it? Are you going to recommend that your family take it or will you wait the six months just to see what happens, even if other people are being given the vaccine? No, we... uh... I, I stick to my guns here. I would not give it to my family. Uh, if it gets authorization within two months, I would see what the longer term effects are and continue to uh, behave like uh, we all should, which is wearing a mask, uh, doing good hand hygiene and socially distance. So it's unfortunately uh, we're losing a lot here if we are not going for at least six months. Yeah, I guess for most people, they won't get the vaccine for six months because it's going to take some time to your point That's about true. distribution. But not the point. Yeah. Dr. Schaubach, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much for, um, for joining us and uh, thank you for all the work that you're doing. Thank you, Julia. Uh, from there. Thank you. All right. After the break, from vaccines to the now, to testing and technology that sits in the palm of your hand and results come within 15 minutes. Stay with First Move. That's up next. Welcome back to First Move. The United States has recorded its deadliest day of the coronavirus pandemic in six months. Over the past week, the country has averaged 155,000 cases per day. As Sarah Seidner reports. State and local leaders across the United States are grappling with the relentless spread of coronavirus. The country reporting another 161,000 new coronavirus cases Tuesday and reporting the highest day of deaths since May. We are in a war right now and the virus is winning. More than a dozen states are implementing new mitigation efforts and mask mandates over the past week. And some cities and states have taken more drastic measures, such as issuing stay-at-home advisories or restricting non-essential businesses like restaurants and gyms, including Michigan, where a three-week pause on reopening goes into effect today. This month, the state has seen its worst numbers since the start of the pandemic. And in Washington, Governor Jay Inslee reported its state saw more than 2,600 new cases Tuesday, the highest since the pandemic began. 
earlier, Inslee closing indoor dining services and limiting store capacity to 25% in response to the rising spread. It is a scientific reality that if things do not change, uh, this number will continue to skyrocket. In Montana, Governor Steve Bullock announced a statewide mask mandate. And in St. Louis, it is closing restaurants and bars to in-person dining and encouraging people to only leave home for essentials. In Minnesota, cases are on the rise, and local news reports say new measures are expected to be announced by Governor Tim Walz today. In Kentucky, the Kentucky governor also expected to announce new measures today, according to local reports. This comes after the state saw 33 people lose their lives to the virus, the highest number of deaths in a single day in that state. At this point, we've got a few months before the vaccines come to the rescue. We want to save as many lives as we can in that interval, and that's really up to all of us. On the vaccine front, Pfizer says it's ready to seek an emergency use authorization for its version. Rick Bright, who left the Trump administration earlier this year and now serves on President-elect Joe Biden's coronavirus advisory board, is concerned about vaccine distribution. We've had very limited, if any, interaction with any of the companies that are working on the pandemic response as well. America, not the only country working on vaccines, of course. China also pushing ahead with the development of their own vaccine. The country is all too familiar with the challenges of containing the virus, given how it first came out of Wuhan. Health experts say it's vital no corners are cut, as Ivan Watson reports. China is a big player in the global race to develop a coronavirus vaccine. As of now, Chinese companies have five different experimental vaccines that have advanced to phase three trials in different countries around the world. The Chinese government has declared vaccine development a top priority. Chinese vaccine companies are making every effort to promote vaccine research and development. Several vaccines have already entered phase three clinical trials. The Chinese government has also been actively supporting Chinese companies to cooperate with other countries in vaccine research and development. The company Sinovac calls its vaccine candidate Coronavac. It's being tested on volunteers in Brazil, Turkey and Indonesia. And though it's still in the experimental phase, the Indonesian government announced plans to start administering millions of doses to citizens as early as next month under emergency use authorization. The company Sinopharm has two vaccine candidates which are being tested in the Gulf, North Africa, and South America. Among those who volunteered for a Sinopharm experimental vaccine, the UAE's foreign minister and the ruler of Dubai, who both tweeted about it. A top executive at Sinopharm says some 350,000 people in China have already taken one of its experimental vaccines. CanSino Biologics experimental vaccine was co-developed with the Academy of Military Medical Sciences, and it has been approved for use by the Chinese military. It's also being tested in Russia, Pakistan, and Mexico. The Mexican government says it has an agreement to purchase 35 million doses of CanSino's product. Finally, the government of Uzbekistan reportedly announced it will be conducting phase three trials of an experimental vaccine developed by Anhui Jifei Longcom Biopharmaceuticals. Some health experts are concerned about vaccines being widely distributed for emergency use 
before phase three trials are complete. This is the part that I worry about with both the Russian vaccines and the China vaccines is the quality control and all of the uh, assurance to, uh, to know that these vaccines are being adequately tested for safety and efficacy. And unfortunately, we don't have uh, a lot of information about that. It really is important that we don't take shortcuts to the science. These protocols are there for a reason. They're there to protect people. That sentiment echoed this week by one of the authors of a study on Sinovac's vaccine candidate. Coronavac could be an attractive option, he wrote. However, data from phase three studies will be crucial before any recommendations can be made. Ivan Watson, CNN, Hong Kong. Fascinating. You're watching First Move. More to come. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. It's a brand whose name evokes the sound of music itself, Steinway. The legendary piano maker who for more than 160 years has given maestros the chance to lead concertos and helped move audiences all around the world. Steinway is part of our 100 Club. Whether you're listening to it or whether you're playing it, what comes out of it is emotional and it is something that makes you feel, you know, very human. Ron Losby has spent more than three decades of his career surrounded by pianos. The story of Steinway and Sons began in Germany in 1836, when cabinet maker Henry Engelhard Steinway made his very first piano. It would take nearly two decades before he would go on to start the company known today, in 1853 in New York City. They wanted to build the piano by which all others would be judged. In 1877, they began partnerships with universities. They very early worked to have relationships through their dealer network with various uh, musical schools, conservatories. And because of that, uh, the name Steinway was there very early. In a world of increasing automation, each instrument is still crafted by hand, even as the company embraces digital technology. And in 2015, their Spirio system ushered in a keyless era for their pianos. A piano traditionally has nothing digital. It was not at all involved in that world. Now we are able to appeal to someone who never thought about playing the piano, never wants to play the piano, but they can have the experience and reveal the beauty of a Steinway piano in their home without ever having to touch a note on it. And that will expand the market and has expanded the market for our pianos throughout the world. That new market has been critical during a year marked by a crippling health crisis that has left concert halls across the world empty. As the company closes in on nearly 170 years in business, finding the harmony between adaptation and upholding tradition is what those here say will drive the brand into the next century. Amazing to see how they're created. All right, and finally, the robots are calling the shots in a sports shop in Japan. 
This electronic enforcer telling people to put masks on and to follow social distancing measures. It's the work of a research institute in Kyoto promoting a society where people and robots coexist. Yes, I'm just looking at that. I've seen Doctor Who. I know exactly how that ends. <laughs> That's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. I'm Julia Chancellor. Stay safe. Richard Quest is in the hot seat for me tomorrow. So I'll see you on Monday next week. Stay safe, guys. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.